Welcome to A Voyage to Antarctica. I'm Alok Jha. In this, the final episode of the series, I'm speaking to Professor Klaus Dodds about the future of Antarctica. Klaus is Professor of Geopolitics at Royal Holloway University of London and a Fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. His many books and articles have been concerned with the geopolitics and governance of the polar regions, as well as the cultural politics of ice. These include the scramble for the poles, ice, nature and culture, and the Arctic, what everyone needs to know. He's visited Antarctica four times and also travelled extensively in the Arctic. Klaus, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Klaus, why don't we start with some basics? This might sound like an obvious question to an Antarctic expert, but for the rest of us, what is Antarctica? Is it a country? Who owns it? Well, I, I think an Antarctica is um, a particular geographical region that's often defined as a large continent surrounded by an ocean, the Southern Ocean. But I also think Antarctica, for much of um, human experience, has also been an idea, a concept, uh, a utopia, something to be uh, imagined and fantasised about as much as visited and settled. And in terms of the geopolitics, um, who, who actually owns this vast continent? The, um, the geopolitics of the Antarctic continent and actually also the surrounding ocean and even the seabed is deeply contested. So at this present moment in time, we have seven so-called claimant states. And if you could imagine a map and it being sliced up like a cake or a pizza, there are these seven remarkable and very, very large slices uh, that are held or claimed by uh, countries such as Argentina, Britain, Chile, France, New Zealand, Australia, and Norway. We also have remarkably a large piece of Antarctic pie that has not been claimed by any one state. Uh, we call that the Pacific Ocean sector. We have two countries, Russia and the United States, who have reserved the right to make a claim over the Antarctic in the future, and that might involve all of the Antarctic, the polar continent in particular. And then we have the rest of the international community who doesn't accept any of those seven claims. And this matters because, of course, some of the most prominent members of, of that community include China. Now, how do you go about making a claim for a bit of Antarctica? Well, if you're the British, of course, you've had lots of prior experience. So when the first claim is made to the Antarctic, formally, at least in 1908, the British, of course, have been building their empire for hundreds of years. So they're very well versed uh, in making claims to so-called undiscovered places. And what you do is you, uh, first of all, you have to obviously discover it. You then uh, seek to explore it. You might then uh, organize some ceremony, which makes it clear that you want to claim it uh, for a particular king or country or whatever it might be. That might involve putting some flags up. It might involve making uh, declarations. 
Uh, and then, of course, so quite a lot of pageantry. Oh, there's a lot of pageant pageantry. Uh, whatever happens in in the polar regions, particularly the Antarctic, of course, there's always ceremony, ritual, and ceremony. And then, of course, you know you'll you'll try and consolidate that by updating your maps. And then the final thing, which is the hardest bit in some ways, is you've got to try and convince everybody else your claim is worth taking seriously. And so that second part is the bit that, as you say, perhaps the rest of the world doesn't take everyone else's claims quite so seriously. Yes, and it's probably easier to do that, of course, if 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 the claimants don't include superpowers like the former Soviet Union and, of course, the United States and, more latterly, China. So you've got these seven countries who uh, are, you know, medium or middle-ranking powers as as claimants. You don't have the big great powers as claimants, which probably is quite significant. In terms of claiming a territory, um, however seriously someone takes it or not, what are these countries that have claims? What, what do they want to do with these claims? Is, is it about future mineral exploitation, exploitation or is it just expanding empires? What is it? What was it that caused all of it in the first place? I think lots of things. I mean, you know, what drove the British to make a claim in 1908? I think it was primarily rooted in economics and resource and resource value. You know, uh, sealing and whaling were hugely important industries. I mean, they were strategic industries. You know, whale oil uh, was was providing a vital uh, heating fuel. Uh, whale bone uh, was used uh, for all kinds of things, including, of course, corsets and the fashion industry. Seal pelts were enormous revenue earners. So I think that was a key driver, resources and economics. Um, another one that always has played a part in Antarctic geopolitics is prestige. Uh, countries like being claimant states. I mean, these are huge territorial areas. Uh, British Antarctic Territory is, you know, three or four times larger than the United Kingdom in terms of surface area. These are big, big spaces. Uh, I think a final thing I'll just point out is um, proximity matters as well. So Argentina and Chile, for example, are claimant states, and they believe passionately that uh, the Antarctic is geographically and geologically connected to their South American continental territory. So it's a kind of natural extension uh, that uh, both countries invest a lot of faith in. So there's a good amount of old-fashioned colonialism exploration involved in this, isn't there? Um, in terms of just making your empire, making your country even grander than it is. Yes, but you know, it often sits awkwardly, actually, with how, what we want to think of the Antarctic. And this is why I came back at the start to this, uh, this idea of Antarctica as an idea, or perhaps even better, an ideal. So 1908, Britain makes the first claim to the Antarctic, as I said just a moment ago. Well, a couple of years later, of course, Scott and his men are, are searching or striving rather for the South Pole. Now, as we know, of course, they get beaten by Amundsen. But the point about the Scott expedition is really a tale of heroism and scientific inquiry. Nobody wants to talk about geopolitics, territorial intrigue, resources. So Antarctica for empires, particularly imperial states like Britain, functioned as a place for heroic endeavour as well. And so that sort of the, the messiness of geopolitics sort of gets airbrushed from the story. And, and that age um, when Scott and Amundsen and all of, uh, all of those people were 
discovering the continent um, is known as the heroic age for a reason. It's these people fighting, these these plucky guys going off to find, uh, going off into difficult situations. It's it's a bit like the sort of the nineteenth, the twentieth century, or the early twentieth century version of the space age, right? In the people competing to get do something very, very, very hard. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I, th- I think absolutely, it is like astronauts and cosmonauts, but this time, you know, the Antarctic, which after all, uh, in the, at the turn of the twentieth century, was as remote as the moon in terms of public consciousness. You know, our maps of Antarctica. Uh, were partial, to put it kindly. And the yes, absolutely. It also coincides, uh, at, at a, at a period of, I think, concern about the manliness of, uh, British males. You know, there's a, there's a lot of imperial anxiety in the air. You know, have we got the right stuff, as t- Tom Wolfe said? Uh, with reference to the American space program. So that, so there's lots of things going on here that goes way beyond just simply resources. So right now, uh, Antarctica has many, many bases. Many of the countries we've already talked about have bases and, and visit, but it's mainly scientists. It's mainly research. And it's essentially a, um, the, the world's last great wilderness. It's, it's a scientific research base, essentially. How have we got to this point from, you know, colonialism from, um, you know, uh, hardy men in the, the, the turn of the 20th century to a place of science. Well, that, that I think in, in a way, the story that we can tell is both of continuity and discontinuity. So, for example, uh, Scott and his team were desperately interested in science. And uh, many, many of the expeditions in the so-called heroic era uh, which is really from the sort of 1890s up until uh, the end of the First World War, um, were deeply, deeply concerned with science and exploration and discovery. Um, but I think what's shifted is that in the 1940s, Antarctica becomes permanently occupied for the first time by the human presence. And that's the onset of large-scale scientific endeavor. It stops being piecemeal and occasional. It goes to permanent. It becomes continental-wide. And it's now commonplace for aeroplanes in particular to enable scientists uh, to move about Antarctica. But also science is also being conducted uh, via the air. So, for example, we have mass uh, photography of the continent. So there's a real transformation. That continues uh, with the International Geophysical Year in the 1950s, late 1950s, where we get a stronger sense than ever before that Antarctica is intimately connected to the rest of Earth. It's no longer this sort of isolated space um, that we, we barely know anything about. And of course, the, the big, big game changer, this is the discontinuity bit, is the Antarctic Treaty of 1959, which says we are going to focus on peace and science and all the business, the messiness of geopolitics is going to be suspended uh, for the duration of the treaty. Uh, and what I've argued uh, over many books and articles is it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. Well, I was going to ask, you know, you have people exploring, people wanting to expand empires, and then suddenly the scientists come in and say, look, we'd like to keep this as a, a reserve, uh, a peaceful place, a place without war and conflict. Was that a hard thing for the politicians of the time to accept? Depends who you talk to. Uh, so, for example, if you're Britain, and this is the 1950s, 
and you're dealing with the shock of the loss of empire. You've, you know, you've had to come to terms with the fact that the empire in one sense is over. India's gone. Africa is decolonizing. And there's, and there's more to come. You know, the winds of change, as Harold Macmillan famously once said. Now, the Antarctic Treaty for Britain is an absolute godsend because what it says is, is that Britain can use science to continue to have influence in Antarctica. But the good news is, if, for example, geopolitics is going to be put to one side, or so the treaty might suggest, then it looks like it might be a bit cheaper as well, because you can just focus on science and you don't have to worry about your territorial claim being taken away by a superpower, for example. If you're Argentina, on the other hand, you're absolutely furious about the treaty because what you think it is is a stitch up and you're worried that actually all those geological and geographical connections you think give you, uh, give a comparative advantage are now being overturned in favor of science. And who does the most science in Antarctica? The United States. So there's a real worry that this is further evidence of US dominance in the post-war order. And how about um, the other emerging powers at the time, um, the, the USSR and others, were they involved in this treaty, this international attempt to make sure that, uh, that, 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 that this continent remained pristine? Well, I think this is one of the most interesting things actually about the Antarctic Treaty, is that it's signed and negotiated in 1959. Only 12 countries were part of that conference to discuss the future of Antarctica. Seven were the claimant states, and the other five were simply there because they had participated in the International Geophysical Year's Antarctic program. And that includes a real ragbag of countries. So you have Japan, Belgium, South Africa, but also critically, you have the United States and the Soviet Union. What was clear at the height of the Cold War was that any treaty uh, regarding the future of Antarctica had to include the Soviet Union. And there's this rather sort of odd moment uh, prior to the treaty where Britain and, and allies such as Australia and New Zealand honestly thought they could have a treaty negotiation without the Soviet Union. That was literally unthinkable. And the Soviet Union made it clear that it was not being excluded from any discussion regarding the future of Antarctica. So that treaty has been incredibly strong and powerful, a model in some ways of international cooperation to make sure that there haven't been conflicts and wars. Um, tell us about Antarctica today. What what does what, what paint a picture for us about what life is like there in terms of the kinds of things you can and can't do there? So I think I think the first thing to say that has been a huge change uh, from 1959, taking us up now to the current era, is that we've got vastly more countries involved and interested in Antarctica. Again, to come back to my point about the 12, you know, what you don't hear uh, from me in terms of that list is you don't hear China, you don't hear India, you don't hear Brazil. Well, that's all changed. So one of the things that you would notice straight away in contemporary Antarctica is it's a global affair. In 1959, tourism, for example, was, was just developing for the first time, very small scale. 2020, tourism now represents uh, something like 55,000 plus visitors 
I mean, clearly the pandemic will have an impact, of course, but putting that to one side, you've got an awful lot of people visiting Antarctica compared to 1959. Many of them, for example, are Chinese tourists in a way that would have been quite unthinkable in the late 50s. You've got science and, and science research stations uh, that now litter the continent uh, with, with some over-concentration in the Antarctic Peninsula because it's close by. And I think the other thing, again, what you see is other industries making their presence felt. The most notable is fishing. What's the future of the treaty? I mean, it's, it's, um, it was signed in the 50s, as you say. It's probably due for um, a renegotiation at some point soon. So what, what can we expect in terms of the future um, of that treaty and then of people's changing interests in, in the continent? I mean, I think that that's such an important question. And I, and I think one of the difficulties the treaty faces is that there is, I think, at this point, no appetite to renegotiate. Uh, there is little to no appetite to innovate. But there are, there are two things that one is immediate and the other is long term um, that absolutely profoundly challenge the treaty. So the, the, the short and immediate one is the pandemic. Um, what we've witnessed in the last couple of months is obviously something quite extraordinary and that very few of us could say they have been untouched by. In the Antarctic, it's had very interesting uh, ramifications. And the Antarctic Treaty works through the principle of consensus. In other words, that everyone has to agree to something in order in order for it to be accepted or to be implemented. And so much of the work of the Antarctic Treaty system, as it's called, has been via face-to-face -face meetings and where social networking, camaraderie, a shared sense of purpose is reinforced year upon year at big meetings. You know, And one of the important things about the treaty is that the meeting rotates every year depending on the, the membership. So this year it was supposed to be in Finland. It would have been a real diplomatic coup for Finland to host the meeting for the first time. Well, that's cancelled. So then you've got the intriguing issue of how do you conduct diplomacy over Zoom or some kind of platform like that? How do you make sure that consensus is secured when you're all remote from one another? And can Zoom diplomacy cope with a treaty that has four official languages, English, French, Russian, uh, and Spanish. So these are, these are, these are interesting issues and, and it will really test the Antarctic Treaty parties about whether they can continue to get along with one another when you can't do all that sort of face to face work. Anyway, that's the immediate challenge. And some of that, uh, has also had implications for on the ice as well in terms of leading to the cancellation and postponement of polar science. Now, the longer term challenge is really tough, and that's climate change. In the late 1950s, no one talked about climate change. You know, all the interest was in how much ice there was in Antarctica. Now we're worried about the ice disappearing. Now, it's going to take a long time because there's an awful lot of ice in Antarctica, but it's been a real, real perceptual shift, if you like, from this immense Antarctica to vulnerable Antarctica. And there's nothing the Antarctic Treaty can do about climate change. You know, so much of what we need to do as a global community 
rests in global institutions, global frameworks like the Paris Agreement. So in a way, the difficulty the Antarctic Treaty has is that it's a regional treaty in a world that is increasingly globalised, and that includes all our wicked environmental problems. Well, also, aren't there wicked political problems right now? I mean, you've got a very fractured world that looks to maximise, each country is looking to maximise its own interests. Um, a country that has signed up to the Antarctic Treaty until now might decide that in 20 years it wants to exploit the minerals that are appearing um, and becoming more accessible because the ice is melting down in Antarctica. It's all very well to sign a treaty in 1950 when you can't get to Antarctica and you can't res exploit anything. But by 2050, maybe that sort of stuff is more easy to do with technology. And so countries might think, well, you know, we need resources, we need money. I'm not going to sign this treaty anymore. I mean, I'm proposing this as a hypothetical. I wonder, are there moves in that direction? I think, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's, my, my response is twofold. I think, first of all, luckily for us, President Trump hasn't discovered Antarctica. Um, he's discovered Greenland and obviously wanted to buy it. And thus far, there's no evidence that he knows that Antarctica exists. And that's probably a good thing. Um, so the serious point is that absolutely, we should be deeply concerned that many of the tenants of the international order, including multilateral diplomacy, are being frayed at the moment, um, despite all the good work that science and scientists continue to do in terms of talking to one another. Um, minerals and resource potential of Antarctica have long been speculated about. And there is some concern, I think, in the West that Russia and China are more inclined to think of Antarctica as uh, a mining opportunity than we might care to imagine. And of course, as always, and you know this as a writer, science fiction has always got there first. Um, so there's also a, a rich tradition of authors imagining the Antarctic as a, as a sort of you know, proverbial treasure chest. Um, am I concerned? Absolutely. I think everything at the moment feels like it's uh, sort of up for grabs. And I think there's a real, indeed, urgent need for the Antarctic Treaty parties to be very, very clear about the values and norms that inform what they do. And if nothing else, it, you know, there's probably a necessary reminder to go and reread the preamble to the treaty and think about why so much of what the preamble says still holds true to this day, despite everything we've just talked about. You've been a few times um, to the continent. How has it changed in the times, in the, in the different times you've been? What, what have you seen there that's uh, different each time? Do you know, I think one of the most profound changes um, was Antarctica appeared to be less white to me. And I mean that in two senses. First of all, because of uh, climate change and warming uh, trends, um, Antarctica was changing colour. There was more and more evidence of um, growth, you know, in terms of Antarctica greening in various places. But the biggest change for me socially was that Antarctica was becoming more diverse. It was less white in the sense of being filmed filled with lots of white people from Europe and North America. I was very struck 
that there were far more passengers and tourists from East Asia, for example. And it was a really nice illustration alongside the change in polar science programs of Antarctica being globalized in a different kind of way and recognizing that all the things that I held dear, like stories of Scott and Shackleton, didn't have the same cultural purchase. And so people were making their own histories and geographies. And so it was really, it was really interesting and a very creative sort of encounter where everything I took for granted was not taken for granted uh, by those around me necessarily. So it became part of a dialogue and exchange. Klaus, I've got one more question for you just to wind up, if you don't mind. Um, why does Antarctica matter to you? Antarctica, I think, matters to me at a, a really visceral level because I, I think I see in Antarctica the very best in humanity. Um, I think I have been humbled by the spirit of cooperation, of uh, conviviality, of camaraderie in Antarctica. Uh, I have also been treated with the most extraordinary generosity and kindness by people who, like me, share a passion for Antarctica. But I also think Antarctica, and I think you probably expect me to say this, is also a warning to humanity that if we haven't worked out yet that we are not masters of our own fate, then I wish I could take all of those who still doubt that uh, to Antarctica with me. So, you know, I think Antarctica is also a wonderful place to reflect on our place in the world, but also that the world will continue with or without us. Klaus, thank you very much. Thank you. A Voyage to Antarctica was presented by me, Alok Jha. It was produced by Jessica Norman, with Ben Hewis as digital producer. Music was composed by Alec Hughes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. A Voyage to Antarctica is part of the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust's Antarctica in Sight programme, celebrating and reflecting on the past 200 years of human endeavour across this fascinating continent. The UK Antarctic Heritage Trust is the charity championing the public understanding of and engagement with Antarctica. You can find out more at www.ukaht.org.